So tonight, um, jumping right in. Last week, we began this section of verses towards the end of the letter, 17 through 23. And we know all these verses really go together because this is the point of the letter where Jude really switches his, um, his, what's the word? Um, help me out. Thank you. Instead of over and over and over all throughout the letter talking about the apostates, he turns his attention to us, the beloved, the believer, and he is giving us instructions of what to do with all the information he's given us over and over. Apostates are in the church. Apostasy is happening. Um, Contend for your faith. So in these verses, he gets very practical with what he tells us to do. So last week, we hit the first one, but we didn't quite finish it. So I want to go back, do a little review. After we complete the first instruction, then we're going to kind of start over. We'll read the letter again tonight, and then we'll go into new material. So... In order to know where I am, we're going to review starting at page 89. Yes, and as you're going there, just remember that this section started with the but you showing the change in direction and the change in focus. And his first call to us was to remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the last days, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. So his instruction is for us to remember. And then he gave us a very specific, it's even in quotes. That's how specific it is. That was a rhema word. Remember this specific thing that there will be scoffers in the last days. So we went through that. We actually got to the last verse. But what I want to do before we move on tonight is to kind of take his instruction for remembering and really apply it in a broader situation than only to remember this one rhema word. Of course we are to remember this. And this letter is laser focused on this one small topic of apostasy. But all throughout scripture, we are reminded over and over Old Testament and New Testament to remember that that is on us. We need to remember. So we are to learn and know the word of God We talked last week, the only way that anything can ever be brought to your mind is if you know it in the first place. So we have got to get it in. Um, First of all, knowing the word of God, and I'm on page um, 89 here, this is one way in which we show our love for God by knowing his word. Mark 12, 30 says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. That is repeated again in Luke 10, 27. But even this idea, ladies, gets scoffed at today. This idea of learning this, this idea of knowing it, this idea of putting time into this. Um, Have you ever heard things like, oh, don't get knowledge for knowledge's sake? Has anybody ever heard that in terms of the scripture? Yes. Um, Everything's... Knowing this starts with knowledge of it. (laughs) Again, it sounds so simple, but yet people say contradictory things about this. Have you ever heard, um, too much knowledge will turn you into a Pharisee? You ever heard that? No, it won't. No, it won't. The Pharisees were not Pharisees because they knew too much. They were Pharisees because they understood too little. We have got to know the word of God. We have no chance in this world without the word of God. Our children have no chance surviving this culture without the word of God. None. It's too much. It is growing worse and worse and worse. We have got to know and understand the word of God. And when I say that, I mean the graphe, which is the written word on the page. We've got to know the scripture, memorize scripture. We've got to know the logos and we've got to know the rhema. We've got to have it all. So, in order to do this, it it requires time on our parts. This is not downloaded into us at the point of salvation. Discernment is not something we just get the second we become saved. We are expected, this is why the Bible tells us to study to show yourself approved. We need to be putting time into this because we don't just automatically get it. So if all of this boils down to knowing the word of God, yet we don't have to look very far or search very long to understand our country in general and Even the church itself is getting more and more biblically illiterate. Not knowing this and certainly not understanding it. So I want to take just a few minutes and talk about this tonight because this is so important. And I don't know if this topic is so important to me because I used to be a school teacher. My first career, I was a school teacher. Many of my years I taught second grade and I don't know if this has changed or not. It was over 15 years ago. Um, As a second grade teacher, we were told that a state's need for prison space was forecasted by second grade illiteracy rates. Does that show you the importance of literacy? People can't survive. People can't survive without these skills. Now, we know 
that in order for someone to be classified as illiterate, it means that they do, illiterate is the inability to read or write. But in order for a person to truly be literate, they need more than just the skill of being able to look at something and sound it out or to be able to write symbols on a piece of paper that are letters. And, and here's why I'm saying this. I, w- I was a French major, and this blows my mind, but at one point in my life, I could read a French novel, and I could write a French paper. I can't even read my own papers anymore because I don't practice it. I didn't do much with it. You lose, you truly lose it if you do not use it. And though I could open a French novel and I could sound it out and sound halfway decent, I would have no clear understanding of what I'm saying. Literacy is more than just those two little skills. We have to have understanding. So what is happening here? What's happening in the country and what's happening in our world? I've got a couple articles here for you that I'm just going to summarize some key things from. If you want to dig into them for yourself, they're pretty fascinating. Uh, But they're here um, for you to look into. So literacy in general in America, America has an 88% literacy rate, which is actually quite high. But what's fascinating is in the year 2021, 80% of American families did not buy or read one single book, not one, 80%. And here's a quote right from the article from Brad East. It says, teenagers and 20-somethings today, by and large, are not readers of books. They read endlessly, as a matter of fact, but their reading takes place in five to 15 second chunks of time on a glowing device before the next image or swipe or alert restarts the clock. Minds trained on this from a young age simply lack the stamina not to mention the desire to read for pleasure for sustained stretches of time. And yet, the most valuable thing we own, and there is no close second, is a book that requires sustained amounts of reading to get it and understand it. So do we see the issue just in general And then if we move to biblical literacy and thinking of America in general, there used to be a time where there was a shared knowledge of the Bible itself, whether a person was churched or not. Still had a Bible in the home, probably. There were still things like public prayer and the Ten Commandments hanging up, and people could probably, even unchurched people, throw out a couple books of the Bible or a few stories from the Bible or whatever. We are in some of the first 
generations where people are growing up more unfamiliar with the Bible than familiar. So a lot of different things here are coming to a head. And then when we think of what is going on in the church. So here we have people who can't even concentrate for long periods of time. Have you noticed? Not in our church. And again, ladies, we're kind of spoiled here. So you're going to kind of have to take yourself out of what you know from here. Um, If you know anything else happening in the church these days, there's not much scripture read. Certainly not long chunks. And there has been less and less and less what is called expository teaching and preaching. So what does that mean? Expository, that word means to expose. That is when you take a chunk of scripture or a book from scripture and you go through it line by line, verse by verse, exposing what is in there. The text itself is the subject. This is the opposite of topical, which means you have a subject and then you have some verses to back it up or to support it or whatever. Are there times for topical sermons and teachings? Absolutely. Sometimes we we just need a class on marriage or a class on money or raising kids or whatever. There's nothing wrong with that, but it cannot be the majority because you do not get this book in context without expository teaching. You just don't because we learn or hear in that way verses applied to things, which obviously verses should be applied to things. But if we are not learning those verses themselves in the context for which they are written, we'll never get the understanding we need. We simply will not. I listened to a sermon the other day just to give you an idea and a picture of what's going on here. And and I wrote down 48 minutes long. The name of Jesus was used one time, four minutes in and never again. No passage of scripture was read at any length. Several verses were given, most of which were out of context because they weren't where they should be the entire 48 minutes Sunday morning behind a pulpit was about losing weight and your health. And those 48 minutes were personal stories and cultural examples. And this person's journey. And at the end, I'm not kidding you. Four books flashed on the scene that TV screen that you could purchase. On a Sunday morning sermon, when we are desperate for the word, and that's how time is being used. And again, this is how time gets used in a lot of places. So all of this is contributing to this problem of people not truly knowing the word and understanding And can you see, can you see a connection 
between the decline of biblical literacy and the rise of apostasy. I can't put a chart up there. I wish I could, but it would not surprise me if there is an absolute direct correlation between the two. If we are not biblical, biblically literate, we can't discern truth from error. We don't know if somebody is um, speaking the word of God or speaking their own dreams and visions. We have got to know the word of God. So, when we are thinking of this first instruction, what I want you to realize, all the other ones come from this first one. We have got to remember the apostles' teachings. That's what it's saying. We've got to remember the Torah. We've got to remember the epistles. They all have a purpose and a place and a message, and they all go together into one complete story. We need full counsel of God and nothing. And I don't want to put something on you because I know how everyone's lives are, mine included. Nothing should take precedent over that in our life. This should be first and foremost is learning and studying the word of God. So that is number one, the instruction he is giving us for What do we do about this? How do we contend for the faith? He's going to give us four instructions. That was remembering. Tonight, we're going to go through the last three. So I'm going to have Andra come up. She's going to read for us tonight. While she's coming up, I can't believe we only have one more week left. That's that's crazy. Wherever you want. Okay. So follow along either in your notes or in your Bibles. I'm reading from the NASB, so it will be a little different. I love the NASB. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same manner, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil, 
and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feasts, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. And about these also Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment above upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken <coughs> against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage." But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there shall be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Okay, let me pray. Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we just thank you for this evening. Thank you for these last two weeks. Lord, I know you have much to say in a few verses. So God, I ask that you give us open ears and open eyes and a soft heart to receive, Lord, all that you have for us. May everything that is said tonight, Lord, glorify you. May we be women who remember your word. May we be women who desire to know it and study it and live in it, Father God. All this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So in verse 20, but you beloved, again, this is the second time where he's starting um, with this prepositional phrase, putting the um, focus on us as the true believer. And this is where he continues his four-part instruction here. And remember these words, not all these words are used exactly. I got these from John MacArthur, but they so summarize each and every point so well, and it helps us to remember them. So remember, point number two is to remain. 
And if we think about what that word means, it is to stay in the place one has been occupying, to continue, to continue to possess a particular quality or fulfill a particular role. So in this, he is telling us, you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, just like our first instruction there, praying, these words, building and praying, are also in the aorist participle form. And what that means is it is a continuous action verb. None of these things are things we do once and then we're done. We are to remember and keep on remembering. We are to build and keep on building. We are to pray and keep on praying. All of these things require continuous action. They're ongoing. So building is a very common metaphor all throughout the scripture. And in Greek, this word means to construct or to build. It again denotes the continuous action of working on a structure of which the foundation has already been laid. Oh, that's amazing. We have our foundation, but we do need to be building on it. Lots of verses there that I want you to dig into for your connection this week, but I just want to point out a few things, and this is in no way an exhaustive list of verses having to do with building, but if I just pick out a few things, in 1 Corinthians, we are told to be like skilled master builders. We are told to build on the foundation that we have. We're told to take care of how we build. Does that mean we could build things incorrectly if we're not careful? Yes. Yes, we need to be careful how we build. Um, Again, build on the foundation. We are to be built on the foundation. There are things we need to be doing ongoing in our life as a believer. And one of those things is building ourselves up continually in our most holy faith. Now, the next word here is so important. Building yourselves. Building yourselves. Are pronouns a hot topic today? Yes, they sure are. Pronouns are like fighting words anymore. They really are. Languages have rules, and we don't get to do whatever we want with words in a language. If we do, the language doesn't make sense anymore. It really doesn't. Pronouns have a meaning and a purpose. They are pointing to something, and we don't get to decide we want it to mean something other than what it does. We simply don't. That It's ludicrous, actually, absolutely ludicrous. This pronoun, yourselves, this is really important here. This pronoun is 
the third person, both singular and plural, remember this is Greek, it can take the place of himself, herself, itself, or themselves. Here's what's important about this pronoun. It denotes that the agent and the person acted on are the same. So what this is saying when it says you are to be building yourselves up, who can build you up? Who's responsible for building you up? You, you, the same person. Nobody can build you up and you can't build for somebody else. This is your self. We are to build ourselves up, building yourself up. This is our own responsibility to do. So we are to be building ourselves up in our most holy faith. This is hagiopistis, and it means a conviction of truth, a belief. Well, this is our beliefs. What do we build ourselves up in? What we believe, what we know to be true, the the word of God. This is what we are building upon. This idea of remaining means we build our lives on these beliefs, the beliefs that we are professing. Habakkuk says in 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. We talked about the importance of knowing this. And of course, that is the first step, but we have to go beyond knowing it and we have to actually live it. And we live it by building ourselves up continuously and consistently in it. That exact verse is quoted verbatim in Romans 1.17 and Galatians 3.11. And if you don't know this, a little fact, that is the verse, the verse that Martin Luther, as a Catholic um, monk, read and sparked the Protestant Reformation. That verse, when he got a hold of that and realized something wasn't matching up here in what the church was teaching and what the Bible was teaching. The righteous shall live by faith. So no one can do this for us. This is something we're all responsible to do on our own. No one can build ourselves up and no one can walk out our walk of faith for us. So several verses in here to really dig into this week. I put an Old Testament and a New Testament verse. And again, these are not exhaustive. You could find many other verses. But I did highlight for you and just look at all that yellow. What word do you see over and over and over again? You, 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 you. Raise your hand if you have a responsibility in this. Yes. This, we are to build ourselves up. So how do we do this? What are practical things that we can do here? It it really has to do with putting into place and practicing the spiritual disciplines 
that the Word lays out for us. Things like reading the Word, learning the Word, studying the Word, holding up everything else against it to test whether it's true or to test whether it's good. Everything, everything. We should be fellowshipping with other believers, both corporately, in church settings, Bible studies, um, social things. We should be fellowshipping with other believers, corporately and individually. That builds us up. Have you ever been, and again, the other person isn't building us up, but we are putting our place into a position to be built up by hanging out with other believers. Have you ever left a conversation with someone and you just feel like you have been strengthened and encouraged and ready to get through whatever you're having to get through? That's the importance of fellowship. We are to put ourselves in places where we hear the word being taught correctly. A prime example of what I just told you, don't waste your time on things like that. That's not gonna, that's not gonna give you anything. You need to listen to the word being taught correctly. Vet the people that you listen to. Look at them, examine what they're saying, examine them. Are we allowed to do that? Yes, we are. We're actually supposed to. We shouldn't just take in and listen and hear anything and accept it. Absolutely not. Many things are called Christian that are simply not Christian anymore. We are to be obedient to the word of God, to do what the word tells us. James says that very clearly. We are to be doers of the word. And then we should be operating in the gifts that he gives us. We all have gifts. If you don't know what it is, find it. There's ways to find it. And then you operate in it. When you are operating in the gift that God has given you, it builds you up. So think very, we can't spend a lot of time here because we've gone through this so many times, but This is not works-based salvation. And if you are hearing this list and you are beginning to feel burdened and you're thinking, oh my gosh, how can I do one more thing? How can I do all these things on this list? I don't have time to do the things that I already know. You need to remember, and you can go back to your chart. It's, I've got the page number there for you. Um, You probably have it in your pocket as well but that the paradigm of salvation, I don't know why I can't put my hands on it. Oh, here it is. That really is a picture of our salvation, ladies. We do not work to get saved. We can't. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. That's it. That's it. But once we are saved, we have work to do. We don't work to get saved. We get to work because we are saved. And there's things that he is telling us to do 
That's called sanctification. And we are to walk out our sanctification. We saw that in Enoch, just the picture of someone walking with God. That's what this whole thing is saying. This is how we build ourselves up. We're walking with God. We're doing the things that he is calling us and telling us to do. So don't get burdened by that. Enjoy that. Enjoy the things he's taught us to do. There's great blessing in every single one of those things. So we are to build ourselves up in our most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Same thing, this word is praying, means continuous action, continuous action. We need to make prayer a lifestyle, not just an activity. It is a-okay to have prayer times. We should have a prayer time. We should, devoted time to prayer. But you're not going to survive if you have a 15-minute prayer time every day and then go on with the rest of your day not communicating with God. You're not. This is... This is second or first Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, where it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. How do we do this? How do we pray continually? How do we pray without ceasing? It just means that our minds are set on him as we're going through the day, as we're going through the day. Oh, Lord, help me to remember my notes tonight. I mean, just it can be little things, just constant communication with God, praying for ourselves, interceding for others, being in an attitude of thanksgiving towards him. As we're going through the day, oh, Lord, thank you for this. Oh, thank you for allowing this. Thank you that I saw this in my daughter. Thank you, whatever. Just constant communication with God. That is what prayer is. And we have to be doing this continually. This, again, is what will strengthen us in our walks. So I heard it said once, and I'm right here in the application, that the time we spend in prayer is a direct reflection of how much we actually believe the word. That was very convicting to me. I don't know about you. But if that is a true statement, what would your prayer life say about you? So we need to remember, we need to know and remember the word of God. We need to remain in it. We need to walk in it. We need to live by it. And we need to be women who are constantly communing with our God and Savior. The third thing we need to do is to rest. Oh, and this one's so interesting, right in the middle of a lot of do, 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 and then... Oh, this is wonderful. So the word rest means quiet, a repose, a state free 
from motion or disturbance, a place of peace, ease, or refreshment, and this one is very important, a state of reconciliation with God. So again, although Jude is not using this exact word here in this verse, it encompasses the meaning of the instruction he's about to give us. So he says in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So keep yourself. This word, terero, we hit this word at the very beginning of class. This is how Jude starts the letter because he calls us kept ourselves. Here, he is telling us to keep something. That means to guard, attend to carefully, and take care of. And next week, we are going to hit this word again, and we are going to see that God keeps us. Oh, it is a beautiful truth. So keep yourself in the love of God. First thing we need to know here, ladies, is no one will ever be able to experience either true rest or true peace if they are not right with God. It's absolutely impossible. This is why so many people are anxious, without hope, um, nervous, worried constantly. You cannot have true actual rest or peace without being in right relationship with God because it comes from that relationship that we have with him. So keep yourself in this love. Um, If we are in right relationship with God, we should be able to rest and have peace regardless of any situation or circumstance. If we fear him, we have nothing else to fear. And I do want to read this passage tonight because I think it's just an incredible picture of this ability to rest in him. In a verse that we probably all know and we probably say quite a bit, uh, be still and know that I am God. Oh, I, I love that. But let's hear the passage in which God is telling us to do that. It's quite amazing. So this is Psalm 46, 1 through 11. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, 
He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and he shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Look at that passage. (laughs) He is talking about natural disasters, political disasters, social upheaval, war, anything you can imagine. An earth in absolute turmoil. And he's telling his people, be still, be still. No, I'm God. It's okay. I'm your refuge. I've got you. Just be still. We need to keep this in front of us. We need to rest in it. We can have peace regardless of any circumstance or situation going on all around us, including great apostasy in the church. Even with everything going on like this, we are still told rest because God is in control. And we talked about this, ladies. This isn't a surprise to God. He told us it's happening. He, he, he knew this was happening. It's been prophesied since the beginning. This is not God falling off the throne so the church is going crazy. This is something he told us would happen. So we just rest. Someone I listen to sometimes, um, she says it this way. I had this quote in your notes last week, but I didn't even read it. She says, the, the world isn't falling apart. It's falling into place. We, we know what the Bible tells us is going to happen. And it is exactly what is happening We do not have to be in fear. We don't have to be in worry or in a state of anxiety. We can actually be in a state of sustained rest through this. So for another application, if our amount of worry and anxiety is a reflection of how well we're resting in God, his sovereignty, his word, his plan. How well would you say you are resting? And if you're not resting well, think about some things that you can do about it. I can promise you the answer is in the two first instructions we were told. That's how we can rest. So the next thing he tells us, we should also be waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This word waiting in Greek means 
to expect the fulfillment of a promise. That's what we're waiting for. We are to be people who live in the light of the future. This world is not all there is. That helps us through a lot. Knowing nothing but that can help us through a lot. Remembering this will help us not get too caught up into the world or entangled with what it has to offer. Because of the mercy of Jesus Christ, we do not get what we deserve, which is death. We are waiting to receive eternal life. We can rest in that hope of our promised future, which is eternal life in a glorified body, free and separated from pain, disease, distress, sin, all of it. That's a beautiful future. (laughs) That is an incredible future. And that is what he's saying. Focus on that. Wait for that. Wait for that. Sometimes do you ever feel like you're waiting for the next hammer to fall, so to speak? Oh, everything's going crazy. What's going to happen next? He's saying, wait for this. Put Put your eyes on this. This world isn't all there is. There's something much better coming. For the believer, this is as bad as it will ever get. Now, I I understand we can have some pretty horrific things. We really can. But for the believer, this is the worst it will ever be. For the unbeliever, this is the best it will ever be. We have a glorious hope to look forward to. We are to wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, because that leads to eternal life. Luke 21, 28 says, when these things begin to come to pass, and he's talking about when the end will come, he says, look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. I rarely use the King James, but I memorize that scripture in the King James for some reason. That's how I know it. And I love that word. Our hope draweth nigh. We are to look up, ladies. We are to wait for the fulfillment of the promises that God gives us. So application for this. How does knowing that this life is not all there is help us deal with the constant trouble and turmoil of this present age. What are some practical things we can be doing that will allow us to wait well? We're going to have to wait anyway. We don't know how long, but there's waiting involved. We can decide if we wait well or if we don't. So think through that this week. What can you do that will enable you to wait well for these promises? And here's the one I want to spend the most time on tonight. Number four, doing these first three things, remembering, 
It means knowing the word, remaining, walking out this life of faith, and resting, not worrying, just trusting in God for all things, will enable, strengthen, and embolden us to do the last instruction that he gives us. And this one is to reach out. We remember, we remain, we rest, and we reach out. Look at what he says here, starting in verse 22. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. As believers, we are in a very unique situation. Jude's letter, again, super focused so that the true believer can recognize and identify apostates and apostasy within the church. They've been described as wolves among the sheep. We have been warned and warned by Jesus and others throughout the scripture. And yet in this last strategy, he is telling us the very people he is exposing and warning us about are also our mission field. And this is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. And you might say, what? This entire letter, oh, it's just been one thing after another, after another, warning, 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 warning. And that's because they're dangerous. And this is why we need to be careful. But at the same time, we don't give up on them. And we're going to see a couple different things come to light here in Jude's instruction. The first thing he says is have mercy on those who doubt. Now this word doubt, dicrino, means to hesitate, waver, to be at variance with oneself. Almost like somebody on a teeter-totter here is what you can imagine. So the truth that we need to share with people is literally coming up against lifetimes of lies and deception that people have heard and believed. This that Jude is giving us here is a picture of people who might hear the truth. They might even appear to put themselves into places to hear it to be around those who have accepted the truth, to ask questions maybe about the truth, but something's always holding them back from making a decision for the Lord. Have you ever known anybody like that? Maybe you've talked to them multiple times. Maybe you have shared many things with them. They might come back and ask other questions but they never take the step. They're in doubt. They waver. 
And several different things can cause this. Actually, a lot of different things can cause this. But it all has to do with this root here. It might be people who see what's going on in the church. Because remember, you all, to the world, there's no difference between the true church and the visible church. The church is the church. So when they're looking at some pretty horrific things that are happening, when they see hypocritical lifestyles, they're just like, I don't know that I want anything to do with that. No, this is why apostasy is so horrible that it, it taints how people view the bride of Christ, his beloved church. It makes people doubt they even want to be a part of it. It can also be, maybe it's somebody in the church and because they have bought into a false gospel or a false Jesus, they doubt the true gospel or the true Jesus. There are a lot of churches out there that present a Jesus that is nothing but loving and forgiving. And Jesus is loving and forgiving. Thank God. But he is also a judge and he is a fair judge and he's coming back to judge. And if a person does not believe Jesus will ever do that, if a person does not believe God would ever judge someone or allow them to go to hell, they are not, they do not know the true God or the true Jesus. And they can be in a church telling them this, what they want to hear. And then when you tell them the true gospel, they can doubt it. Oh, that can't be true. Surely that's not true. It all, again, do you see how this all goes back to knowing the word? It all goes back to knowing the word. If we want to have mercy on those who are doubting, people who are tottering on the, between the truth and lies, <laughs> and we are told to show them mercy, which means kindness, it means having a desire to help them, the only way to do that is if we are women of the word ourselves. And we can explain hard things. Are those kind of hard to talk about? Absolutely. Absolutely. I promise you this, though. The more you understand it yourself, the easier it does get to talk about it. And the more you understand it, the more you will talk about things like this with the right attitude and with the right heart. We've got to be women of the word. We've got to understand the hard things of the word so that we can have the answer for those who are doubting. Things like this. Explain verses like Matthew 7 
12 through 23, which I believe is one of the hardest and most shocking verses in all of scripture. And this is Jesus himself. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Is this saying that there are people that actually believe that they are saved and when they come to judgment day, they will be told they are not? Is that what this is saying? This isn't my opinion. This is what Jesus is saying. People who are prophesying, are there false prophets? Absolutely. People doing signs and wonders, are there false signs and wonders? Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, some people, no doubt, knowingly doing these things because of what they get from it. These are the shepherds that feed themselves. But there are people that have bought into a false gospel that have been deceived by the apostates doing things, thinking they're working for the Lord. And Jesus is saying they're workers of lawlessness. I don't know that it can get more serious than that. I I really don't. Again, the tragedy of apostasy. People are being taught things that are incorrect. And if they believe it and they build their lives upon that, unless they turn, unless they come into the actual truth, the full truth, their eternity is not going to be what they think it is. And here Jude is telling us, go to them. Go to them. Are there quite possibly people in our own church that aren't really saved? Probably in every church. Probably in every church. We can't just assume. We can't just assume. If you doubt, just ask somebody. If they're truly saved, they're not going to mind you asking. (laughs) I sat my own girls down, my own girls. (laughs) I'm like, okay, girls, how do you know you're saved? Explain to me. Because they need to know it. I need to know it. So 
So Jude tells us in this situation, have mercy, again, showing kindness to them and good will. This is good will. Think about this. This isn't, oh, I told you so. You know, when that happens, oh, I tried to tell them. You all that. That's not the correct heart in any form of evangelism or, or witnessing. Are people going to um, refuse to hear or sometimes get angry possibly if we try to tell them? Absolutely. And what do we do? Show them mercy. Show them mercy. Oh, you all, we are recipients of such great mercy. <laughs> oh, we have received such great mercy. So we are to show mercy to others. So in an application here, think through this this week. Is there anyone in your life like this? Either people you've spoken to many times, but they just haven't made the decision. They might be interested to hear and they keep coming back, but they never say, okay, okay, I I believe. That can be frustrating (laughs) and it can be very time consuming, but this is what we do. This is what we're called to do. And again, if there's people in your life that maybe believe they profess to be Christians, but for some reason, there's something that you're looking at and you're thinking, this, this doesn't add up. Something's not right here. How do we deal with these people? What do we do? What is the correct path to make sure they are in right standing with God? So the next thing Jude tells us is save others by snatching them out of the fire. So, show mercy on those who have doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. This word save is sozo, and it means to rescue from danger or destruction. Now, obviously, we are not the ones who can actually save anyone. That is the work of God and God alone. However, the primary means and method that God has put into place for someone to come to salvation is the sharing of the gospel by the believer. That's the vehicle by which people get saved. He does the saving, but we are to share the truth. That is our job in it. And we know in Romans um, 1, remember when Paul says, oh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of salvation. Power of God for salvation. Thank you. So he's saying, go say it. I save them, but you have to go say. You have to say my words. So this word others, this is interesting because Jude is giving us a distinction between the people he just mentioned, those in doubt, and these people who need to be snatched from the fire. He's distinguishing between these two groups. And by his verbiage, it paints a picture of a much more critical or serious situation. Have mercy on these people. Snatch them 
snatch them out of the fire. Do you see the difference there in his language? These, I do not believe these are the people being deceived by false teachers. I believe these are the false teachers. The people who, unless they turn and turn quickly, they are heading to hell. The flames of hell are already almost upon them. And he's saying, snatch them. Go get them before it's too late. Now, this is interesting. We see a twofold approach to unbelievers modeled by Jesus himself. And if you think about this, Jesus ministered in different ways to different people. And there's all kinds of different people where they are in their walks. And when I think of some people and what comes to my mind is like the woman at the well or the woman who's caught in adultery. Person totally living a sinful life, not in right relationship with God. And yet look how Jesus spoke to them and approached them. Oh, with gentleness. Those stories are absolutely beautiful. And he explains to them and he leads them into the truth. Still sinners without turning, their eternal destination would be the same. But he approaches them gently. When he's talking to Pharisees, people who are deceiving and putting burdens on people that no one can even handle. Does he talk to them in the same way? No, much more serious, much more serious, much harder, (laughs) but still gives them the truth. They still have a chance to turn. So we need to think about in this, um, in this instruction to go and share. So even the false teachers themselves, the ones Jude has been warning us about since the beginning of the letter, the one the other apostles have warned us about, the ones that Jesus has warned us about, they are still part of the mission because they're unsaved. (laughs) The unsaved are the mission. Now, this will be the toughest field of all. There is no doubt. And we saw that in Jude's explanation. If you remember the progression of Cain to Balaam to Korah, it showed a progression of apostasy. And along every step, it would have been harder and harder and harder for a person to turn back to the truth. And that is true for all apostates. The longer they are in an apostate lifestyle, the harder it will be for them to turn. But that doesn't mean they can't. And just because it's hard does not make it impossible. 
We are to pray for these people. We are to reach out to them. We're not to allow them to preach or teach in the church. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. They need to be identified. They need to be dealt with. If they don't change, if they don't repent, they should be forced to leave the body. But as soon as they do, you go get them. What a picture. You make them leave, but then you try to go get them. But you try to bring them in correctly and rightly. And this is what he is saying here. This word snatching, look at that word. Oh my gosh, one of my favorite words. You all, we've seen this idea before. Harpazo, which means to seize or carry off by force to claim for oneself. Where have we seen this before? In the rapture. Absolutely, in the rapture. That's what harpazo is. This snatching away right in the nick of time to save someone from destruction. One day, Jesus will harpazo his church right out of here at the exact right moment, which only God knows, but right in the nick of time. This is why I am a firm 100% believer in the pre-tribulation rapture. I believe that is what the Bible teaches. We don't know the day, but we know that there is a snatching away of his church right before the destruction coming in the form of the wrath of God in the tribulation comes to the earth. He snatches us away. And until then, we get the privilege of snatching others away. What an incredible thing. What a beautiful opportunity that he has given us. So until then, until the rapture, we have the privilege to harpazo others. The world is full of people where the flames of hell are literally licking at the soles of their feet. And he's saying, go get them. Go get them. Go snatch them out of that. James 5, 19 and 20 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings them back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So we're to have mercy on those who doubt. We are told to save others by snatching them from the fire. And finally, he tells us to show mercy with fear. So same word here, mercy. This is this desire to help the afflicted. The unsaved are afflicted whether they realize it or not. So that is the point there to show mercy to them. But this time he adds a little caveat there with fear. This word is phobos. That's where we get our word phobia. And it means dread or terror or that which 
strikes terror. We so often want to remove any talk of fear or dread from our presentations of the truth. We often think that removing those things, removing some of the harder things that the Bible teaches might make people more acceptable to the truth. That's not true. That's that's not true. If they come into, quote unquote, salvation through a false one-sided gospel, they're not going to want to stay in it when they hear the full truth. (laughs) They need to be given the full truth. Do people who are not in right relationship with God have something to fear? Absolutely. Absolutely. Hell? The wrath of God? The judgment of God? They have plenty to fear. And there is nothing wrong at all with telling people that. They have got to be given the whole truth so they can make a decision based on the facts. It is as simple as that. And I hear a lot whenever I talk about this, people will say, well, it's the kindness of God that leads to salvation. And that is absolutely true. It is the kindness of God that leads to salvation. In God's kindness... He gave us the whole truth of what is coming. It's no surprise. He doesn't say at the end, gotcha. (laughs) Oh, didn't tell you that one. His kindness is revealing the truth to us. And that truth contains the truth of hell for the unsaved and the truth of the white throne judgment. For the unrighteous. Those are things to be feared. The judge should be feared if you're not on the right side of the judge. Do you all remember when we studied the book of Esther? This was so fascinating that all these people, when um, I want to say Artaxerxes, Xerxes, So he gives out the command, um, unknowingly, really, and it ends up being that all the Jews can be attacked and can be killed, all of them. And he can't change it because that was Persian law. He said it. He wished he could take it back. He could not. This day was happening. And then Mordecai and Esther, if you remember, though they could not change the law, they were able to add to the law that said, okay, Jews, you're able to protect yourself that day. You do whatever you need to do to protect yourself and to protect your families. And if you remember what happened, multitudes of people changed They got on the sides of the Jews because they were scared of the God of the Jews. 
Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. God is to be feared. He is the one, it says, that can send a person, body, and soul into hell. <laughs> and that is the, tr again, you all, these are not my opinions. This is the truth of Scripture. And we can't think we're doing somebody any kindness by allowing them to live however they want and think however they want and believe everything's going to be okay when it's not. Kindness is telling them the truth. And we've got to be women okay with that and bold enough to say it and strong enough to face maybe some backlash when we do, maybe some rejection when we do. Is everybody going to accept? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But they shouldn't, they shouldn't go into hell because nobody ever told them the full truth. So let's be women that are willing to do this. The last thing he says here is we need to hate even the garment stained by the flesh. This word hating, same tense here, you all. This is something we continue to do. This is very interesting, very strong word. It means to detest or to pursue with hatred. And what are to, we to hate? The garment stained by flesh. Now there's two Greek words for garment. The first is hamation, and the second is sheeton. The hamation is the outer tunic. It's what's worn on the outside. You could think of it almost like a big rectangle of cloth that they would wrap around, almost like a toga. This is the garment other people would see. Okay, this is the hamation. The sheeton is the undergarments. The clothing worn close to the skin that nobody else really sees. Jude here is talking about the sheeton, the undergarments. And he is calling them, yeah, it is graphic but clear. <laughs> this is like dirty, filthy underwear. <laughs> kind of gross. Kind of gross. <laughs> Y'all, this is what sin does. It stains, it defiles, it's nasty. And we are to hate it. <laughs> We're to hate it. We're to hate what sin does to people. We're to hate what apostasy does to people and what it does to the church. We're supposed to hate it, and we're supposed to keep on hating it. We should never be okay with it. We should never get to a point where we're okay with it. Constantly 
hating it just like we would this. So in this, here he's saying these people wear clothes stained by the flesh. So these apostates are walking around in gross, filthy garments. This is what he's saying. But don't miss this. At any point, they could exchange their filthy rags for the righteousness of Christ. Just like we made that exchange. What an incredible exchange that is. What a beautiful thing we get to offer people. Until we know there's always a time where the time of mercy and grace ends. It is either at the time of someone's death, at that point, that is it, decision made, or it will be the time of Jesus's return. Whatever comes first for whoever it is, one of those things is their end point for decision. Until then, anybody can change, apostate or otherwise. Doubters or deceivers, anyone can make that exchange. And we get to be the ones that share that. I know sometimes, and I can say this with 100% truth because I was there. I used to not see sharing the gospel as a privilege. I used to see it more as a dread. Oh my gosh, I really have to do that? Oh my gosh, I have to talk to this person? Oh my gosh, I need to share my faith with somebody? I I did not look forward to it. I dreaded it. It scared me. The only thing that is different about my life today than then is I'm more in the word. That's it. That's the only difference. If you've been in this class, you know my story. God woke me up and he woke me up hard one day. And after that, my life has been different. And in studying the word, in being in the word, it has allowed me to be more open to share my faith. It's given me more... Um, I don't want to say confidence, but it is kind of confident, just an assurity, because if you know something, you don't mind sharing it. It's hard to talk about things you're really not clear on because people will catch you. (laughs) People will catch you if you're just talking and you don't know what you're talking about. But if you know the word, you can share it. So let's just be women who know it so well. We can openly and even joyfully share it. Joyfully share it. This is, the gospel is called the good news. Has anybody ever told you good news and you couldn't wait to go tell somebody else? In fact, you jumped the gun and you told somebody something you shouldn't. 
because it's that good and because you want to share it because what it's going to do to the person who hears it, that's how we need to view the sharing of the gospel with excitement and with joy. It's definitely not easy. Not easy. And again, apostates are probably the hardest people to reach, but it is possible. It is possible. And we need to be women willing to do that. So with that, let me pray. Father, we thank you and praise you again for this night and for your word. God, thank you for Jude. Thank you that we learned at the beginning this letter he didn't even intend to write. He probably didn't even want to write. He wrote because you told him to and he was obedient. And because of that, we have instruction of how to live in a world full of lies and deception and apostasy. God, may these instructions that Jude gave us that were breathed out by God himself be clear to us. May we understand it. Lord, help us through the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to walk these things out. Help us to learn the word. Give us a greater desire for the word than we've ever had before. Lord, help us to remain. (laughs) Help us to remain in what you've given us, in your love. Help us to walk out this life correctly, building through the instruction that you give us in your word, communing with you, Lord. Help us to rest. Help us to not worry or be anxious, Lord, but to rest in your power and your provision and your sovereignty and your plan. And God, embolden all of us, strengthen us and help us to be women to reach out, whether to people in doubt or whether to deceivers themselves, Lord, Enable us to do that. And God, I even pray for opportunities that we all might do that. In the precious and powerful name of Jesus, amen.